sing, our hope is firmly in you, and you are worthy 100% of that hope. Lord, as we approach your word, I pray that through your spirit, you would drive it into our hearts, that you would make us understand what you would communicate with us this morning, and that we would love you more because of it. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat again. All right, church. Well, we're going to continue this week looking at the book or the letter of Jude. Jude in June is part two today. Now, if you have a Bible, go ahead and find your way to that book. It's the second to last book in your Bible, right before the book of Revelation. And that will be on page 1027 if you're using one of those black pew Bibles that uh, we set around the room. Now, last week, when we actually began our study in the short letter, uh, we learned that it was written by a man named Jude. That the title, Jude, is based off of who wrote it. And we also learned that Jude is also the half-brother of Jesus. Of Jesus. But even though right, he was related to the most significant person in all of human history... He had determined not to anchor his identity in that earthly relationship with Jesus, but rather his eternal one. His eternal one. See, Jude recognized that he was a sinner in need of a Savior. He recognized that he had been bought by the blood of Christ. That when Jesus went to the cross to atone for sins, Jude recognized that he was there on his behalf. That Jesus was acting as a substitute, taking on the wrath of God in which he himself deserved, and Jesus did not. And so he identified himself as this servant, this bondservant of Jesus Christ. It's just a way to say that you belong to him, that, that he has accomplished everything on your behalf. And like every Christian, Jude also taught us that as a bondservant of Christ, that you are beloved by God the Father, and that you're actually being kept for and by Jesus Christ. See, Jude's whole identity, church, and this is really important, that's why we're going to look at this again, his whole identity was wrapped up in the person and work of Jesus. It wasn't wrapped up in what he does, nor his accomplishments, nor his failures, but rather his identity was wrapped up in the one who had saved him. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. Now I made mention that we have other scriptures that teach us that out of an overflow of this salvation in which Jude experienced, he actually ended up becoming this itinerant uh, teacher and preacher in the early church that he would travel around preaching and teaching in various churches in the first century. In this letter, although it's not written to a particular church, it's written to the churches in which he had visited and built relationship with. And at one point, he wanted to basically go back and just rejoice with the church about this common salvation that they had. But yet he had gotten word that these false teachers had infiltrated the churches that he had relationship with. And so he had the right to them saying, you must contend for the faith. 
You cannot let people come in and change what you know and believe and what has been delivered to you about who Jesus is and what he has done. So he's writing this rather punchy letter saying, Church, you have to contend for the faith. There are false teachers there now, and there's more false teachers coming. And so he's writing for two reasons. One is that he wants them to remember the faith that has been delivered to them. To remember their identity. To remember who Jesus is. Remember what he has done. And then second, he's writing that to the church, to, so they have a clear understanding, a clear picture of who these false teachers are and what are some of the hallmarks, or what are some of the identifying factors of false teaching in which they might be already experiencing. And so in our text today, we're going to be in verses 5 through 16. 5 through 16. And we're going to see Jude give a dense rebuke to false teachers here. So meaning that this section is Jude's judgment on non-Christian teachers. Okay, that's an important distinction to make. He is speaking about non-Christian teachers. Right? He's not talking about Christians who struggle in their faith. He's not talking about Christians who, who may be doubting their faith. He's specifically talking about those who are pretending in the church to believe in Jesus and what he's done. And they're pretending and have gained this position of influence, and he's speaking judgment upon them. And he wants these false teachers to know what's coming to them. Because this letter would have been read to the churches, right? It had been read out loud. So he knows that these false teachers are going to hear this. And so he's writing for them to be able to hear about the judgment, right? The hammer that's coming at them. And we're going to take a moment and just look at that through our time. But before I actually read that passage, uh, I want to pray one more time. I do this every week. You guys know this. But yet every week I'm like, I need to do this again. So I'm going to pray for you and ask that as I'm doing that, will you just pray for me? And then we'll read the text together. Well, Father, I want to just come to you one more time before we actually look at your words through your, through your scriptures. God, I'm aware that I'm completely dependent on you. And everybody in this building is completely dependent on you to just rightly know, to rightly hear, to rightly understand who you are and what you've done and what your word actually says and teaches and the warnings that it gives, the encouragement it gives, the gospel in which it announces. So God, I pray for us in this room. God, I pray that you should illuminate our hearts, change our hearts to be able to rightly respond to you. God, I pray for our kiddos next door as they are just looking at the way that, that this good news of what you have done, Jesus, traveled throughout the, the early church. God, I pray for those teachers. I pray for those kiddos. You save them. We just give them new hearts that love you and desire to know more about you. Lord, we know that every single one of us is dependent on you, and so we just submit that, because you are good. And it's in your mighty name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. Let me go ahead and just read verses 5 through verse 16. And they'll be on the screen as well. He says, Now, 
I want to remind you, although once you fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, has, has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Verse 11, Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees on late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of sea casting upon the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars from whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, these are the grumblers, or grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Thanks be God. Now you know why I prayed, huh? There's a lot going on in that passage. There's a lot we're going, I, I don't know what that means. Well, even though it can appear to be a difficult passage on the surface, because Jude is, he's highlighting a couple of different things, right? He's, he's using scripture, he's using Jewish literature, he's even using his own illustrations to talk about the danger of false teaching in the church. And although it can be confusing on the surface, I think there is, there's an importance here, right? Every word is important, it's why it's in the Bible. So we have to do our due diligence to try to understand, okay, what's the point in which Jude is making here? What's a way that we can maybe organize his thoughts for us to rightly understand what he's talking about? Right? What are some categories that we see Jude using that can help us just see, okay, Jude, what's your, what are you trying to say about false teachers here? Well, I think there are some categories that we can put into the text, and I admit that we are putting them into the text just for, for organizational purposes. And those categories are similar to a Christmas carol. In fact, The Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. I know it's, we're about halfway to Christmas, 190 or 89 days, I think. I'm sure, I know, you guys are counting down too, I know it. <laughs> don't, don't look at me like that. But remember The Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, right? Ebenezer Scrooge. Okay, what's the premise of that? Well, 
this man named Ebenezer, right? He, he has his own issues. And in a, the night before Christmas, right, he, is, he has this dream where he is visited by three ghosts. Do you remember what those ghosts are? It's the ghost of Christmas past, right? The ghost of Christmas present and the ghost of Christmas future. Well, I think in a similar way, what Jude is doing for us in this section is he is highlighting the false teachers of the past, the false teachers of the present, and the false teachers of the future about what's coming down the pipeline. And so that's how we're going to look at it, the past, the present, and the future. So let's go ahead and look at verse 5, where he starts. And Jude starts with this past language by reminding them about what they have been taught is of old, is of old. And so he says, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it. And here's why he makes that statement. Because Jude is reminding them that the teaching in which has been delivered to them, even what he is about to go through, is not a new perspective on Christianity, or it's not a new perspective on spirituality, but rather it falls in line with the faith that's been handed down to them. To them. Which is a really important distinction to make, because what Jude will be saying here in just a short bit is one of the hallmarks of false teachers is them to separate themselves of what has been said in the past, and rather to give you this new perspective, this new revelation. And Jude's saying, no, 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 what I'm about to tell you is not new. You actually have already been told all of this. All of this actually can be found in the Word of God. So I'm saying, I'm not telling you something new. I'm reminding you of what has been told to you. And so the rest of verse 5 into verse 7, he starts with three Old Testament examples about false teachers in the past. He talks about Israel, angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, the first example he gives is Israel. And he tells them that even when Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt, even when he saved those people, there were still those who were destroyed because they did not believe. Now, okay, what what is he getting at there? Well, he's, he's talking about how even there's always been this amidst God's people those who maybe they were, they were Jewish or they were Israel by blood, but they never actually believed in the God of their fathers. Rather, they were just trying to use God for his stuff. They actually didn't want him. They just wanted the stuff that came along with him. And he said, so God dealt harshly with them, right? And hear, hear me on this. God will not be a means to your end. He is the end. He is the end. And so he first talks about how even amongst God's people, there was those who didn't believe, and God dealt accordingly. And just a quick note, it's not the point of the sermon, but a quick note in verse 5, Jude makes Jesus central in the Old Testament. That's why when we jump back into Genesis, here in the beginning of August, and we start connecting Genesis to Jesus, we do that because Scripture does that. Okay? All right, now the second example is that Jude talks about is these angels that have rebelled against God, that they were not satisfied or content with where God had them, and they rebelled. 
and they were judged accordingly because of it. Now, some like to go into the weeds and go, okay, I want to really figure out who these angels are and what they did. And is that a reference to Genesis 6? I'll let you guys figure that out on your own time. But I think the point which Jude is trying to make is that even angels are tempted with pride. They are tempted to leave the position, to leave the corridors in which God has created them to walk through. That's good for them. That brings flourishing to them. But yet, like all of us, we're tempted to say, I want something more. I want to be God. I don't want you to be sovereign over me. I want to be sovereign over me. And the harsh rebuke here, church, is what Jude says is that no matter who you are, no matter who you are, even an angelic being, judgment can come swiftly and permanently. God doesn't play games. He doesn't play games, church. And then the last Old Testament example in this section is he talks about this ancient city, Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says that they were burned to the ground because of their false teaching. And then he even highlights specifically that they were unrepentant when it came to their sexual immorality. And we'll see that being important as we continue. But here's, here's I think, the, the summary of what he's getting at, what Judas is getting at here. And why he looks to the past, right? He's looking to the, to the Old Testament, right? To the Pentateuch, which these Jewish Christians would have been very familiar with. Is he's reminding them and showing them that there's nothing new under the sun when it comes to false teachers. Even for us. Listen, I know that we live in a crazy world right now. And I think we would all you know, probably describe it in that way at some level. Right? We would all probably say that Man, it seems like sin is just rampant. It seems like false teachers are anywhere. It seems like the, the promotion of sin is everywhere. And what Jude is telling us is that it may seem new to you, or it may seem scary to you, but it's not to God. He knows all this. He's been dealing with this since the very fall of mankind. He's been dealing with this since Genesis 3. And so we can trust him. It may be new to us, right? We're walking through these, these new ways that, that we're trying to promote sin in our culture. But God is not surprised by this. He's not saying, oh man, I never saw this coming. I've never seen humans try to do that with each other. No, he's saying, I, I know that. And I have been using my purposes and my sovereignty in my judgment accordingly throughout all of history, and so you can trust him now. That judgment has come, and it will come again in various forms, ultimately in one form, and we'll see that at the end of the passage. But the big idea is there's nothing new under the sun. And he's trying to tell these false teachers, right, the road that you're walking down, it does not lead where you think it leads. So be warned. And that's why he turns his attention to the present. So he says, starting in verse 8, he says, Yet in a like manner, these people, these people are the false teachers in the church, are also relying on their dreams to defile, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme 
the glorious ones. So in the same way, he moves from the past to the present, and Jesus says, okay, I want to give you some hallmarks to the false teaching that you're going to see today. And so he lists a couple of different things. And he actually starts with, he's like, you really know something fishy is going on when false teachers bring their authority from a dream or a vision. Now listen, I'm not anti-dream or vision. God actually does, we see in Scripture, he actually reveals things to God's people through dreams. But yet those dreams have to always fall under submission to what has God previously said. God will not contradict himself. Our God is not one of confusion. So even if God, maybe he presses something upon you, it's not that you go, oh, this is unique to me. I can do whatever I want. And what Jude is warning here is be really careful when someone says, I have a dream. I've been given this dream. And they will say, oh, it's, it's by God. It was from God. I'm sure of that. But what does that dream lead to? Well, look at, the, look at the other hallmarks. He says it will lead to the defilement of the flesh. It will lead to the rejection of authority and the blaspheming of the glorious one. And that's talking about the angelic realm. I don't think it's hard for us to see or us to connect the dots to our own culture today, is it? If you were to look up every single right, cult or, or false religion and see how did that get started... It will mostly, the end of the road will say, some guy had this vision from the Lord, supposedly, and because of that, he created this new religion that seemed to serve everything that he wanted to do. It gives you permission to sin, permission to reject the faith that's been coming before you. And they'll even say, I have been given this untapped power that nobody else has been given in the world. Red flags, church. That's what should be going off. And that's what Jude is trying to say. He's like, if somebody's coming to you saying that they have this vision from the Lord, and it completely contradicts everything that's been said before, run. Contend for the faith. See, what false teachers, what false teachers will do is they'll say, look at me. Look at me. Look what's been given to me. Look at what I say. Look at what my vision is. And yet, no, they don't ever say, look to Christ. Look at what he, who he is, what he has done, what he has given the church. Where is the attention being focused? That's how you evaluate false teaching. It's why I think starting in verse 9, Jude actually reminds him about the story about the archangel Michael. Right? When he had this argument with the devil over the body of Moses. Now I know what you're thinking. Wait, wait. I, I don't remember that. The good news, it's not your memory. It's not in the Bible. Okay? See, what Jude is quoting here is, he's not quoting scripture. He's actually quoting Jewish literature. It's, it's from a, a, a very common Jewish literature in that day known as the Testament of Moses. Okay? It wasn't considered canonical. It wasn't part of the Bible. It wasn't part... It wasn't authoritative in the church. But what Jude is doing is he's, he's drawing upon this popular, popular storyline that would have been very common to a Jewish audience. And he's saying, hey, do you remember that story about the archangel Michael? And how he contested 
with the devil about the body of Moses. Do you remember what he said at the end? He said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, why does Jude bring that up? Well, think about how they blaspheme the glorious ones and what, how false teachers are constantly trying to direct your attention away from Christ in his authority, right, in, in his supremacy and onto their own. He's saying, even the archangel Michael, he didn't say, look at me. He said, the Lord rebuke you. So even all the angels in the scriptures, they don't want the attention on them, right? We don't pray to them. We don't go searching for them. They're saying, no, no, no. I'm here to gaze your eyes towards Christ, just like a good teacher does. And that's why he brings up the story about the archangel Michael from the Testament of Moses. But take special notice, church, on this. These are indicators of false teaching that we're constantly evaluating. And, and here's the truth in our, on the way that information is passed in our culture. We have to then use this framework, not just for the pulpit, but for the shows that we watch, right? for the, the, the things that we attend to. Information is always being taught. Everyone is a disciple. Everyone's learning to follow from somewhere or someone. It's just a matter of who or what. And so we are to take these, these guidelines of Hallmark's false teacher and apply them to every single realm where we get information. That's what Jude is trying to communicate to us. And so to add on to those, those indicators, let me give you a few more that we see from this text. As Jude says that there is going to be this rejection in authority. Right? There's going to be this defilement of the flesh. So it means that there's going to be this, a, sh- a subtle shift away from the word of God. And it will be subtle. Remember, false teachers don't come and say, hey, look at me, I'm a false teacher. It could be subtle. But anytime there's a, a shift away from the authority of God's word, red flag. Or maybe there's a, a, a subtle caveat away from the good sexual ethic in which God has actually given humanity for flourishing. Right? If there's a, even a small caveat away from that, red flag, red flag. Or maybe there's this, this spiritual como- component that's being taught, saying, you know, I have this, this unique way that I talk to God and he talks to me, that I can't share that with you, I can't, you can't hold me accountable to that because it's unique to me. Red flag, red flag, church. So what is a church to do, right? What are we to do when we see this? Or maybe we're wondering if this is happening. What did Jude say previously in verse 3? Contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. Check everything by the book in which our faith is recorded. Right? We don't have to wonder. Now, one of the ways that sometimes false teaching gets a foothold in the church and in our own lives is oftentimes they will appeal to something good in the process of misleading. Right? Their appeal will be good, such as, don't you want to reach those who are different than us? Don't you want to reach certain communities of people who don't know the gospel? Well, of course we do. That's why we're doing the very things we're doing. It's like, well, if you want to reach them, we need to build a bridge. We need to meet, meet halfway on that bridge. 
see, it's going to be appealing to something good, even, of like reaching the lost. But church, the way that we contend for the faith is not to change the faith. It's to contend for it. Especially in the church, right? We don't expect the world, right? Those who are outside of Christ to understand or to want the things of Christ. But inside the church, we should. We should. So it's not bend the faith. We contend for the faith. And maybe we take those good desires that we have, but we do it in the way in which God has said, contend for it. Contend for it. Now, starting in verse 11. Excuse me. Jude basically moves into more illustrations in, in order to communicate this reality of these present-day false teachers. And I'm going to move quickly just because, for the sake of time, um, there's nine illustrations. I can't spend a whole lot of time on each one. So he starts with three more Old Testament examples. In verse 11, he talks about Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Now, like Cain... Jude is talking about they will tear down and even kill the innocent in order to pursue what they truly want. They will tear down and even kill the innocent to pursue what they truly want. Like Balaam, they'll say whatever they think will bring, bring in the biggest paycheck. There's a money component to false teachers. He says, like Korah, they will consistently rebel against good authority in order to get a position of influence, saying, I, I don't need to be held accountable to th- those good, godly authority. I can actually go do something on my own. I can self-appoint myself. I don't have to wait for someone to, to see if I actually meet the qualifications of a teacher. So he uses those three Old Testament examples. But then, I think because he's also aware there's probably people in the church that maybe don't have that Old Testament background, he uses more poetic illustrations in verse 12 and 13. He uses six poetic illustrations about hidden reefs, right? Shepherds who only feed themselves, waterless clouds, fruitless trees. And what's the point of all those examples? He's saying false teachers will never be able to deliver what they actually promise. Like a cloud that looks like it's full of water, nothing's coming. Like a shepherd who says, follow me, and I will lead you to green pastures. He's only about himself. It's why these are so deadly, church. It's why it's so important for us to be able to recognize, is this false teaching? Because it's not going to lead you where they're saying it's going to lead you to. And Jude would not be using those examples, church, if they weren't seemingly good things. Or if they weren't things that we naturally actually desire to want to experience. He wouldn't be bringing this up if it wasn't real and true and a part of our own temptations. Like I said, their arguments, I think, will be good at first. Right? They'll seem catchy. They'll seem like they're maybe aligned with Scripture. They'll seem something special or something right. And Judah's saying, it will not go where you think it's going. It will not deliver on its promises. Like, like a hidden reef. It's smooth sailing until... Bam! You hit it. You didn't even know it was there. And then 
the ship of your life is wrecked and you've got a whole lot of issues to deal with. That's what a hidden reef does. It's why we're, at least we attempt to be, try to be completely unapologetic and upfront with our own doctrine as a church. We want you to know what we believe. We want it to be accessible to you, right? It's why it's on the website. It's why it's at the Connect Desk. It's why it's written out, right? There's no secret knowledge here or secret doctrine or levels that, you know, only members or only deacons or only pastors get access to this teaching or this doctrine as a church. No, it's all out there. It's all out there. In fact, it's one of the reasons, church, why we subscribe to a historic doctrine of faith known as the 1689 Confession. It's because I didn't want for a second anybody to think that me, as a young preacher, right, a young man in ministry, was trying to have this new flavor of doctrine in order to build a church. I didn't want that. Furthermore, I knew, and I, and I wanted it to be known that as a 32-year-old guy, I'm not the first person that could write a doctrinal statement. Rather, I wanted to rely on something that's been written in the past, something good and faithful, something that will hold me accountable as I continue to grow in my knowledge of the Scriptures. Listen, I have a master's in theology. It's such a misleading term. I have not mastered theology at all. I want to learn and grow just as much as everybody else in this room. And so, what do we do? We subscribe to a historic confession of faith that can bind us to the old, something that's been delivered to all the saints. Something that's been tested. Something that builds upon the mature, godly men and teachers of the past. You guys ready for the Father's Day sermon? Real quick, can I insert this into the text? And by the way, even if you don't have your own kids, if you are a guy in this church, right, if you're a member of this church, you are expected to be a spiritual father to somebody here. It means we have a lot of really good, godly spiritual fathers in this church, and we need you. And you know why we need you? Because they ha- we have young guys like myself who are young and stupid, and we need you to help us see Jesus. We need you to help us to bind us to what has been given and handed down. Because this is true of every single generation. Every single generation, there is a tendency, a sinful tendency, that we like to think that we have figured it out. Or that there's this new and trendy way to follow Jesus. Or there's this new and trendy way to be a Christian. And we don't want to fall into those traps. So spiritual fathers, help us see Jesus. See our faith. And help us contend for it. We need you. Okay? End of Father's Day sermon. Go back to Jude. We looked at the past, we looked at the present, now let's look at the future. In verses 14 through 16, Jude discusses that there is ultimate judgment actually coming for the ungodly. Not for those who are struggling with their faith, not for those who have placed their faith in Christ, but maybe find themselves trying to figure out, how do I do that in this life? 
And they're working at it, right? They're repenting of sin. He says, no, for the ungodly, those who never have nor never will embrace Jesus and his gospel. He says, to them, there is a perfect, just hammer coming. And he quotes in verse 14 into 15, he quotes first Enoch, which is also not in your Bible, but it was common Jewish literature about this prophecy, right, about that God's perfect judgment is going to come onto false teachers. And his original audience would have understood this. I know for us it seems strange. Like, what are you talking about? Is this the Enoch, right, that we see in Genesis? Was this somebody else? The point is that perfect judgment is coming. And he uses this, right, these authors that would have been popular in that day to communicate the truthfulness behind that. And we do that as well, right? I quote people, right, that are not Bible writers, but we, we quote them because we think that what they said is true and right. For example, let me pull up a couple different quotes. One from R.C. Sproul and one from C.S. Lewis. If you have maybe written, or not written, read Christian literature or theology in the last 50, 60 years, you've probably come across these quotes at some point. The first one by R.C. Sproul where he says, Every sin is an act of cosmic treason, a futile attempt to dethrone God and his sovereign authority. Or C.S. Lewis, who says, If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Now, are these quotes considered infallible, inerrant words of God? No, they are not. But do we think that there's truthfulness in these statements that can be helpful and edifying to a Christian? Yes. Yes, we do. And so in a similar way, that's what Jude is doing by quoting first Enoch. I think if, right, he would have quoted, you know, a lot of these guys like R.C. Sproul if he was written in that day. But his main point is for us and for them is, is he wants his church to know that these false teachers will have no excuse on Judgment Day. They know what's coming to those who mislead the church. They know that they are going to be judged according to the fruit in which their teaching creates. Listen, false, well, this is true for all teachers. Teachers will be judged uniquely by God. Scriptures tells us that. Uniquely by God. And one of the ways he says that you will be judged, teacher, is by the fruit in which your teaching produces. In verse 16, Jude just says, you want to know what the fruit of this, these false teachers are? It's grumbling. It's malcontentness. Right? It's sinful desires being pursued. It's being boastful in your own agenda. He says it's, it's all rotten fruit. It's rotten fruit. Now, so those are the false teachers of the past, the present, and the future. And almost done. Now, but what do we then do with all this? Like, what do we do with this as a church? Because I don't know about you, but it seems to me like that there's many holes to fall into, right? There's many ditches to avoid. So what is a church to do? How do we then contend for the faith? And we'll talk about that more next week. But let me leave you with this. What do we do? How do we actually not fall into these traps? You keep your eyes on Jesus, church. 
You keep your eyes on him, the founder and perfecter of your faith. That's why if you go back to verse 5, how Jude began this section, remember he started a bit by reminding them it's Jesus who saves. It is Jesus who led his people in that first exodus out of the slavery, out of the bondage in which they had with the Egyptians. That he is the one who saved them out of that. He is the one who ultimately brought them to the promised land. And he's reminding the church today is because in a similar way we're going through a second exodus where we have also been freed from the bondage of sin and slavery through the blood of a spotless lamb. We have been led out of bondage, right? We have been set free, but yet we are not at our final destination, are we? So like a desert, we are moving, but God is saving. God is equipping. God is providing just like he did for the Israelites. He does so for us today. And we can trust him as we wander from where we were saved out of to where we were saved to, we can trust him right now, church, in the desert. We can trust God to be God as he is keeping us for Jesus Christ, the only one in whom salvation belongs to. And that's what I want to point you to, and I pray that that's what godly teachers will point you to. So let's go ahead and end there. Let's pray, and then we'll respond. Well, Father, I want to end our time in your word by simply thanking you. Thanking you for just being a God who saves. For giving us even this word to just not fall into temptation, to follow anything outside of you. Outside of what points us to you. God, I know my own heart. It's prone to wander. It's prone to leave the God I love. But yet, I know that you are the one who keeps, that you are the one who works all things to your will, and you've called me to contend for your faith. Contend for the faith that you have given us through your word. And may we do that. We need help with that, Lord. But Father, we just want to end by saying we love you, and we need you. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, if you're able to why don't you stand one more time?